So today we are continuing in our series on the life of David uh, called Shepherd, Warrior, King. And we are in 1 Samuel chapter 23 today. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 23. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or you're having a hard time finding it, don't worry. We'll, we will have the words on the screen so you can follow along there. Nobody will be left behind or confused as to where we're at. Um, so I'll give you guys a moment if you're wanting to follow along in your own Bible or Bible app, and then we'll get started. All right. So like I said, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 23 today. We'll be starting in verse 1 and then reading verse 1 through 14. So it looks like everybody's about ready. So we'll go ahead and jump in. We've got some great things to learn from this passage today. So in 1 Samuel 23 verse 1, it says, It was reported to David, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and raiding the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, should I launch an attack against these Philistines? The Lord answered David, launch an attack against the Philistines and rescue Keilah. But David's men said to him, look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, go at once to Keilah, for I will hand the Philistines over to you. Then David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, drove their livestock away, and inflicted heavy losses on them. So David rescued the inhabitants of Keilah. Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah and brought an ephod with him. When it was reported to Saul that David had gone to Keilah, he said, God has handed him over to me, for he has trapped himself by entering a town with barred gates. Then Saul summoned all the troops to go to war at Keilah and besieged David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting evil against him, he said to the priest Abiathar, Bring the ephod. Then David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has reliable information that Saul intends to come to Keilah and destroy the town because of me. Will the citizens of Keilah hand me over to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, please tell your servant. The Lord answered, He will come down. Then David asked, Will the citizens of Keilah hand me and my men over to Saul? They will, the Lord responded. So David and his men, numbering about 600, left Keilah at once and moved from place to place. When it was reported to Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he called off the expedition. David then stayed in the wilderness strongholds in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. Saul searched for him every day, but God did not hand David over to him. So anytime that you are learning something or trying to, to understand a, a, a concept or trying to understand uh, a, a, a place or whatever else it might be, it's really, really helpful when we have contrasts, right? Contrasts are, 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 are great for clarity. They're great for providing clarity, whether it is in a classroom setting where you're learning something about math, history, or science, or so on, and the teacher says to you, now, what I'm saying is not this, and they show you how not to do the math formula, or they show you this is, you know, this is not what happened, but this is what happened, right? That contrast really helps, or, uh, you know, whenever you were... Uh, to use another school example, whenever you're at PE and your uh, PE teacher was showing you some stretches to do, they might have said, now don't do this, 
but instead do this, right? That contrast really helps because that's just the way, that's one of the helpful tools that we have for learning is, is, is the rule of contrast and seeing what something should not be and then what it should be. And, and we say, oh, okay, that really helps. That brings a lot more clarity to the picture. And in this passage here in uh, 1 Samuel 23, really throughout 1 Samuel, uh, the book as a whole, but especially in 1 Samuel 23, in the passage that we just looked at, we have a, uh, a very, very stark contrast between the behavior, uh, you, the assumptions, the thoughts, belief. I mean, we can get really deep, but we have a stark contrast in, uh, in Saul and in David, right? We have a very stark contrast in Saul the tyrant, right? A, a, a false king with no more legitimacy, but then David, God's chosen true king. We, we have a stark contrast in how these two men behave. And so what that provides for us as people who are seeking to be Christ followers, right? If you are here and you're, and you're a dedicated Christ follower, or maybe you're still just exploring, right? But if you are a Christ follower trying to seek to figure out what it means to be a Christ follower, well, then getting these, these contrasting pictures really, really help us because it brings a lot of clarity. That's what we're going to see today as we contrast between these pictures that we have of David and of Saul. And there's three things that I'm going to draw out that I want us to see. So three things, three words, right? Those three words are first direction, and then deliverance, and then devotion. Those are the three things, three words which is going to guide us for today. Direction, deliverance, and then devotion. So let's start with direction and, and how we see uh, some contrast here between David and Saul. So just to give you a, so just to look at the story once more and to remind us of where we are. So David is on the run in the wilderness at this point. Prior to this, or you know, before this, he was a, a very high-ranking general in Saul's military cabinet, right? He was uh, the most famous of all of Saul's commanders. Uh, he, he had a great amount of favor, and like I said, and a great reputation among the people of Israel, so much so that his reputation of fame surpassed even that of Saul. The songs and, and, and praise of the, praises of the Israelites were singing about David and how he had defended them and rescued them again and again were so popular that even the Philistines knew about these songs, right? And so you have David who was once in this position, but Saul being the, the tyrant that he was, was uh, suspicious, cynical, and secure. And so he started seeing David as a threat to his own rule. And so he, he starts trying to have David assassinated. Because of this, David has to go out into the wilderness and live on the run as, uh, as an outlaw. Right, and so this is the the wilderness season of David's life here. He's 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 living as an outlaw on the run, and uh, as he is living out in the wilderness, running from Saul, there are men of Israel who are slowly being attracted to him. And so, and if you're here before, in the previous chapter, it said that David had about four hundred men who had come to uh, who had come to be with him. They were loyal to him. They wanted to follow him as their new king. Uh, in this chapter, we see it's already up to about six hundred men that he is following with him. And so here they are in, uh, in, in the wilderness. They were taking refuge outside of this, uh, some towns in Judah, and they find out that this town named Keilah is being sieged and attacked by the Philistines. Okay, So they're on the run. They find out it's being attacked. And so David wonders to himself, because remember, he's still, he's still, though he does not have the office yet, he is acting as Israel's true king. And so what would a king do? He would go and rescue his people, right? He would go and defend them. And so, because David has the heart of the true king, he asked, well, 
even though we're on the run, should we go and rescue this town? Right? Should we do something? Should we, should we beat off these enemies of, uh, of, of God and his people? Right? And so what he does, though, is he doesn't just go ahead and do it. He doesn't say, okay, that sounds like a great idea. Men, let's go, right? Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's, not a, he's not a John Wayne character, right? Uh, he, he's, instead, he stops and he seeks God's direction. So he's not impulsive enough to just get this great idea and then run after it. Or, and he doesn't get this great idea and say to himself, now how is this going to help me politically, right? Because, of course, rescuing these people, you would assume, is going to continue to raise up his status uh, over Saul's and gain more and more of Israel's loyalty to him over Saul. He doesn't stop and say and, and evaluate it politically. He doesn't stop and even evaluate it just in, in terms of raw numbers and strategy and say, we have this many men and supplies and it's going to cost us this. Instead, here's what he does. The first thing when he, after he thinks to himself, should we go, is he seeks God's direction. The very first thing that he does is he seeks God's direction. Are we supposed to go? He inquires of the Lord, and he receives an answer from God telling him, yes, go and deliver that city. But his men are a little apprehensive, right? They're, they're a little worried. They're scared, and so they have, they have some pushback, and they say, are you sure? Because remember, they're already in a very vulnerable state. They're, they're running, they're living in, from, in caves and hiding out in the wilderness and, and doing whatever they can to survive as outlaws. And now they're supposed to go rescue a city from a foreign nation, you know, threatening them. So they're, they're rightly so, reasonably hesitant because of their vulnerable state. And so David doesn't just try to say, no, you know, I'm your leader, and if you're going to follow me, well then, well then, you know, get on board or hit the highway, anything like that. He inquires of the Lord again. He says, God, are we supposed to do this, right? My men need certainty. And God gives them the same answer, and then they go. We see it again later on when he's trying to figure out if they need to leave Keilah. But the point is, is that again and again, at every stage, and, and whenever David has a choice set before him, he seeks God's direction before he makes the choice, right? There might be a lot of other, you know, it's not giving us the full context. So there might be other questions that come into consideration, and they might have discussions. But what the text wants us to see, what the storyteller wants to see, is that David's primary um, concern was, I need to figure out what God wants us to do. I need to figure out where God's going, and then I'm going to follow him. That's David's thought. Now, Saul, on the other hand, if you... If you go later today and read, you know, the several chapters before and after this, but you can see it even here in this chapter. Saul, on the other hand, whenever he is trying to decide whether he should go do something or where David is or, or if he should attack David, um, is, is never guided by seeking God's direction. Instead, Saul acts very impulsively, and he acts impulsively based on whatever seems to be in his own best self-interest in the moment. Moreover, whenever he's trying to figure out where to go and what to do, unlike David, seeking God's direction, he relies on the words of others around him. If you go and read this whole chapter, we're going uh, to be going over the, what happens after this in the next couple of weeks, okay? But if you're going to read this whole chapter later today, you'll find it's pretty obvious that both Saul and David have a pretty extensive network of espionage happening because they both get word ahead of time of what the other one's doing, right? Um, so David gets word. He gets some intelligence, and then he seeks God's direction. Saul, on the other hand, gets word, right? So he finds out David's at Keilah, and he says, let's go, <laughs> right? They're, they're, 
there's no seeking God's direction here. And so here's this contrast that we see. David, the true king, sought God's direction. Saul, the tyrant, sought the direction of others. And here's what this means for us. The point should be obvious, which is this, is that Christ's followers seek the direction of God. This is the first thing that we have to learn from this passage on direction, which is that Christ's followers seek the direction of God. That should be apparent, right? That should be the the natural conclusion just from the term Christ followers, right? If If you call yourself a Christ follower or if you ever think of yourself or call yourself a disciple of Jesus, right? All these other words that we use to, to say the same thing as being a Christian. All of these words bring along the idea of we are following Jesus's. We are following God's direction for our life. And so this is an essential, it's, it's, uh, it's a part of the Christian life uh, of being a disciple that you cannot pull out, right? If you try to take the following out of discipleship, if you try to take the following out of Christ's followership or being a Christian, well, then you have removed the substance of what it means to be a Christian and to be a disciple. It means to follow Christ's direction. Think about this. Where do you turn whenever you need directions in life? Where do you turn whenever you need directions in life? I think there's a few different types of people. You know, the, one type of person, they need to go somewhere, and so they take out their phone, open up maps, type in the address or, or search location, figure out where to go, and then they get the route, and they, they hit the go button, right? And then they follow those directions. Maybe some of you guys, you know, you, you open it up. You just kind of need a picture of where it's at, and then you get going, you know, but then God bless some of you, right? You, you don't need any of those things, right? The, the spirit of Lewis and Clark and Davy Crockett lives on in you, and so you, if somebody tries to tell you where to go, you say, no, 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 just tell me what direction. South, I'm going, right? And, and you just head off, right? But, but, where do you turn whenever you need directions in life? Where do you turn? Where do you look? The thing is that we look for directions in life, even if it's not for things that are outside of actually navigating a city, right, or getting across the country. We seek direction in all other areas of our life as well. We seek direction whenever it comes to uh, the choices that we make for our lifestyle in terms of how am I going to dress and present myself, right? We, we look for direction in terms of uh, what should I spend my money on and what, should, what kind of things should I uh, prioritize in my, in my budget and what kind of things should I not spend my money on? We, we, we look for direction whenever it comes to, for, for those of you who are single, for, for finding a spouse and, you know, uh, who am I supposed to date and how to, what are the uh, key things that I need to be looking for to know if this is somebody that I should consider for marriage or not and, uh, and for parenting and for all of these other things. Even for mundane issues in our life, very often, we seek the direction of others. And we do this all the time, like I said, for every area of our life, whether we recognize it or not. The question is for us, if we are Christ followers, is to ask, are we looking to God's direction or are we looking to the direction of others? Okay? Are we looking to God's direction? And what I'm talking about is something that goes beyond just your, your morning devotion time. Because if you, if you have a morning or, or an evening devotion time where it, it's, it's a it's a period of time that you have blocked out for reading the word or maybe reading a devotional book and spending some time in prayer. Well, then maybe there you pray and you do, see, and you do pray things like, you know, Lord, lead me. Lord, show me how you want to go. And, and maybe you have a specific situation in mind that you, that you bring up to God then, right? But then very often what happens in our Christian life is that that time, that devotional block has um, hard walls around it. 
and a lid on top of it. And that and seeking God's direction only stays there. But then we don't carry it out into the rest of our life. So in other words, what happens all out of that time, if, if that's your 7 a.m., what happens from 9 to 5 and so on, we're not following God's direction then, right? Then we're just we're just doing we're doing our thing. We're we're working. We're going to school, we're studying, we're setting meetings and appointments, we're hanging out with friends, doing whatever else, right? And so what I'm saying is that if we're going to be more like David and less like Saul, if we're going to be Christ followers, we need to take that idea of of trying to find God's direction and then follow it and remove that lid and carry it out into all of our life so that in my work, I'm seeking God's direction and following it. Right? In, in school, I'm seeking God's direction and following. In my relationships, right? whenever, whenever I go to lunch and I have a random encounter with a stranger, we strike up a conversation. Even then, I'm seeking God's direction and following it. In every moment of every day, I'm saying, Lord, what are you doing right now? And how do you want me to participate? Right? Are you following God's direction or are you seeking the directions of others? It can be so easy for us. And, and look, I'm guilty of this too. So often we start to follow the directions and the lifestyles and accept the values of the people and things that we see in social media more than what we are given in the Bible, more than what we are given in God's word to us. It's so easy to slide into that and to realize that your life is more and more being shaped by and begin to look like what, like I said, the media or some influencers or, or the corporations who are paying all these people, what, what they want your life to look like, right? Instead of, what, instead of what Jesus has for us, right? Instead of what God has in store for your life. And so let me encourage you, seek and follow God's direction. Try to discern what he is doing in every moment of your life and follow him in each one of those moments, right? We believe that God is all-knowing, that he is all-powerful, that he's all-sovereign, right? If you, if you believe those things, well, if you believe those things like we do at Redeemer, then isn't it a natural assumption then to assume that uh, if he is in control of every moment of my life, then he has a purpose for it, right? So there's nothing random. There's no random encounter. Every moment is an opportunity for you to either join in on what God's doing or to be ignorant of it, and to follow your own direction of what someone else is telling you to do. Direction. We seek the direction of God and follow it. But what is the result that we, whenever we look at this passage, what is the result of these two men following different directions, right? David following, seeking and following God's direction, and then Saul uh, following after whatever's in his own self-interest or what others are telling him to do. Because there are, there's a very stark contrast in the results, like so in the behavior, and then what happens in the world between the person who follows God's direction and the person who doesn't. Whenever we look at David, as whenever he follows God's direction, he is empowered and led to become the deliverer of Israel, right? I mean, it is, like I said, he's on the one hand, he's not a John Wayne character, but on the other hand, he kind of is, right? It is awesome that just like as this outlaw living in the desert, he rides into town. It sounds like a, like a cowboy movie, right? He comes riding into town and rescues these poor people from, from a menacing threat to them. Like that's, that's every single cowboy movie there is, right? And so it is super cool, right? Like David goes and he rescues this town from a nation while he's living as just a tiny little vulnerable force of outlaws. He goes and he rescues them. He delivers them. I mean, think about 
about, you know, in those, in those movies and, and, and stories that we have of, of the hero coming to rescue, how they throw parades and they celebrate as this, as this hero comes in. And that's what David does here. But it's important for us to understand. He doesn't do that just because he's awesome, right? He, do, he doesn't just do it because he's powerful or he's invincible. He does it because he follows God's direction, right? And that's what happens whenever a man or a woman follows God's direction. They're empowered to do things that they cannot do on their own. Right? So that's the result of what happens whenever God follow, uh, David follows God's direction. He is the rescuer. He, he is uh, led to be a deliverer of Israel. Look at Saul on the other hand. Let me remind you of what happened right before the, this story in chapter 23. Do you remember what happened? If you've read it, if you were with us, I'll remind you. Do you remember what happened right before this? I mean, literally, it's just in the sentences before what we read. Saul discovered that the, uh, that the, the, the priest Ahimelech had unwittingly helped David escape from him. And whenever Saul finds this out, he slays not only Ahimelech, but he has the entire priesthood slaughtered. He, it, it was, the text says it was about 85 men. He has the entire priesthood, about 85 men, Ahimelech and all of his family executed. But then not only that, uh, uh, Doeg, who was the officer that carried out the, the execution, went back to the town that, these, that the priesthood was living in at the time, which was a town named Nob, and he went and he slaughtered all of the rest of their families, the women and the children and all of their livestock. It was, it was a, a genocide that happened here. This was the priesthood of Israel. The, the priesthood was, um, you, you can think of like the priesthood stood as a representative of the whole nation. So here's the king of Israel, the king, right, of Israel, who's actually a tyrant, in a sense, attacking his own nation, in a sense, attacking his own people wherever he attacked and went to war with the priesthood. And so you have David, the true king, on the one hand, who following God's direction is led to be a deliverer of Israel. But then Saul, on the other hand, the tyrant who becomes the destroyer of Israel. This is what happens where you have one man following God's direction, which then leads to deliverance, human flourishing, right? Things being, th- what is out of order being set right. And then on the other hand, a man who follows his own direction, right? His own wisdom, uh, who tries to uh, seek his and, and establish his own kingdom, bringing destruction. Here's what this means for us as Christ followers. It means that for us, it means Christ followers are people who bring the deliverance of the gospel. So as Christ followers, if we are seeking the direction of God, then we will see the same results in our life, which David saw here. Okay, no, I'm, not, I'm not saying you jumping up on a horse and going to deliver a, a small town. That's what I'm saying here. Uh, I mean, maybe some of you, that might be in the works. But, uh, but most of us, no. Um, but if we are seeking God's direction, then it will lead to deliverance. Christ followers who are following the direction of God will bring the deliverance of the gospel because here's the thing. We as people who uh, have, have uh, accepted the gospel, who are shaped by the gospel, who live by the gospel are people who have been liberated right, from those things which once held us in bondage. And we can then bring that message of liberation, of deliverance to a world living in bondage around us right? because the gospel is a message of freedom. It's a beautiful thing. It is a message of freedom to the world. But here's the issue. How will the world know? And how will your neighbors, your family members, your 
your coworkers, your, your colleagues in school, whoever else. But how will they know if no one brings that message to them? If you're just following your own direction, if you're just going through the motions of life, and you're not seeking God's direction and seeing the opportunities that he's placing before you, right? And, and, and trying to remain in, in close relationship with his spirit and, how, and what he is doing, you're going to miss out on these things. And then who will bring the message? This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 10. He says, he, he says you know, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord and confesses their sin uh, will be saved. But then after that, he says, he says, but then, but then how will they call if they do not know? And he says, and how will they know if they have not heard? And so he quotes this passage from Isaiah chapter 52 that says, says how blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. Let me tell you what that verse says in context, that chapter says in context. In Isaiah 52, in, in verse 2, you get a really good image of what it's describing here. It's describing Israel, and it's describing a people who are living as slaves. They are living in bondage. It says in verse 2, stand up, shake the dust off yourself. Take your seat, Jerusalem. Remove the bonds from your neck, captive daughter of Zion. You see how it's describing here this image of, of a people and of a nation who are living in bondage and of captivity. The, the very phrase of the bondage around their neck uh, being captives and, and how they are, are laying down in the dust and it calls them to get up and shake the dust. But what leads to them uh, removing their bondage and stepping into freedom? It says in verse 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald, who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You see that message of liberation? That message that for people who maybe, for people who once were living with hostility between them and God, it's a message which comes and proclaims peace. Where there was once hostility, it comes and it proclaims peace. For people who once uh, had no, who, who, were, who were living in oppression, whatever else, it brings uh, good news. It proclaims salvation, that word meaning deliverance. The gospel is a message of freedom for those who are in bondage. Because here's the thing, for as long as we live in sin, right? For as long as we live in sin and we live according not to what God tells us, but we live according to our own wisdom or we live according to the world's wisdom. We try and go out and we don't say, what does God desire for my life? But we just instead say, what do I desire for my life? What, is, what does my heart want? And just follow after my heart or, and I, or what does my culture tell me? Right? What does my culture tell me about what my life is supposed to look like and what kind of choices I'm supposed to make and, and, what I'll, and what does my culture tell me I should do in order to be a good person and what I should not do in order to not be a bad person? What does my culture tell me about how I should view myself and the identity that, should, that I should take on? The, what Scripture shows us is that as long as we live in that mindset, and as long as we live that kind of a life where we are receiving the messages and, and words and, and ideas of the culture and, and of our own hearts upon ourselves, that we will be in bondage to those things. Because those things and, and the identities that our culture tells us to put upon ourselves cannot bring freedom. They cannot bring uh, uh, human flourishing, and they ultimately do not end in life. But on the other hand, whenever we follow what God says for us, right? Whenever we, whenever we see the kind of life that he lays out for us, and then we, we submit to it and obey, well, then in that there is life, right? Because whenever you follow, think of it this way. Whenever you follow the, 
the manual of, or whenever, or whenever you follow the directions to use something that was written by the creator or by the inventor of it, things go well, right? Whenever you use the Toyota manual to drive your, your Toyota vehicle, the people who made it, things will typically go well. And the same is true for the God who lovingly made you. Whenever we follow him, because there is Jesus. Jesus was the greater David who came and rescued a people, but then was in, but ended up being rejected by those people. You remember David rides into Keilah and he rescues the people. He finds out that Saul is coming. And so he assumes, right, that the people are going to protect him. But he asks God, right, because he seeks God's direction. And God says to him, no, they're going to give you up. Though you rescued them, though you saved them, they're going to give you up. They're going to turn their back on you. Jesus was the greater David who came and rescued a people who had ultimately rejected him, right? Jesus was rejected and crucified by, by his own people, by the people that he came to save. And here's the thing, though you and I were not in the crowds shouting crucify him or kicking at the dust or, or, or spitting at him or mocking, he was put on that cross for our sin. He was crucified because we, just like the citizens of Keilah, have had, had or have, or currently, right, have rejected our deliverer, have rejected our hero. But here's the thing, because his love is so strong and because his love is so unbreakable and nothing can stand between it, he suffers the cross still. Because even our sin, our rejection of him, and even as you become a Christian and you still fall into sin, that cannot break his love for you. And so he achieves victory for us in his own death. And so now this brings a message of liberation to us and a message of freedom. Because do you still live beneath the crushing debt of your sin? Well, if you are in Christ, if he has paid your debt and you laid down your life before him right, to follow him as your Lord and Savior, well, then that, that crushing debt has been lifted off of you because he paid your debt in full. He paid your debt in full. Have you guys ever paid off a loan before? Whether uh, maybe, maybe it was some kind of loan you took out from a bank, maybe it was an auto loan. Have you ever paid off a loan before and then you get this beautiful letter in the mail and you open it up and you take it out of the envelope and on there it says, we're just writing to let you know that it has been, and they put, they put it in bold, paid in full. Do you want paid in full written across your life? Do you feel the, the, the burden that sin places upon you? right? That debt, do you want paid in full, stamped on you? Christ offers us that in that he has paid our debt. But the shame of sin that sometimes hangs over us like a cloud, right? Or that feels like a stain on our souls, that, that shame of sin, he washes away. The fear that we might live with in our life, fear that, that, that God has rejected us, or that in the end, God is going to get his due on us by, by uh, uh, condemning us, sending us to hell, judging us, right? Or the fear of, of anything that any man might do to you, that is taken away whenever you see and understand that, that he, Jesus, holds me in his hands. And that, like Paul said, nothing can separate me from his love. What can any, what kind of threats can come against us in our life, right? Threats from tyrants or threats from bosses or threats from whoever else. What can they bring against us? Ultimately, nothing because he is our king. Do you see how much freedom can be brought to your life wherever you, wherever you are following Jesus as your king, as your savior? 
You're no longer beholden to the opinions of the people around you. You no longer have to care and try to follow and live up to the expectations that the culture has for you and, they, and, and what they have to say about who you have to be and how you have to live and what kind of identity you need to take on or, or, or whatever else. Those opinions are no longer chains that hold you down or, or, or burdens that you have to carry around, always wondering, right, if you are still living up to their opinions of you because you now have the opinion of God, which is what? His eternal love that has been displayed for you. And if God has seen the worst in you and yet still loved you to the end, who cares what the world thinks about me? Right? This is a message of liberation and of freedom that we are all invited to live in. If you have not accepted that message yet, and if you are, if you are not yet living in that freedom, if you have experienced the weight of sin, that debt being removed from you, let me encourage you to lay your life down before Christ today. Right? Lay your life down before him today. Bring all of your sin. Bring all of your shame. The things that you try so hard to hide from other people and deny even from yourself. And put them down before the hero who loves you so much that he, that he suffered so that uh, your debt could be paid and your shame washed away. Do that today. And if you do that today, and for those of you guys who have already done that, then here's the thing. Once you receive that freedom and that liberation, he calls us then to act as liberators to the world. He then calls us, just like David here, to then take, uh, take that blessing that we have been given and to spread that blessing out into, into the world around us, into our neighborhoods and schools, city, and so on. Uh, it, you can think of it this way. In the creation, whenever God creates the world, he makes the garden, he forms the garden, he places his people in it, and he tells Adam this. He tells him to work the garden and to keep it. He tells Adam to have a, a ruling dominion over the garden so that through his, his, his benevolent dominion over the garden, he might cultivate more good and beautiful things. What scholars tell us is that um, in the ancient Near Eastern context that this was written in, it's this idea that God is setting up his people to be what they call vice regents. What that means is it means to be like a little ruler ruling on behalf of the big ruler. <laughs> it means to be like a governor ruling on behalf of the king. And whenever you accept the gospel and you follow Jesus in, in new freedom, that is not just given to you so that you can go on happily with your life, right? Uh, being no good for the world. You are given that freedom and it is beautiful and you should soak it up and enjoy it. But we are then called to bring a blessing to the world as God's vice regents. As Jesus, who is the great shepherd, as, as little shepherds to the world around us. Who, as we seek and follow God's direction, right, through the power that he gives us as we stay in close intimacy with him, we set upright the things that were out of order, right? And where there was brokenness, we, through the power that he gives, we bring healing and restoration. Where there's division, we can bring in unity, right? Where there are those who are living in bondage, we can bring in the good news of freedom. And where there are those who are living in literal bondage, right, we can bring in the good news of freedom as well, which calls tyrants to fall down in obedience to the true king, Right? This is what happens when you have people who are devoted to God. This is what happens when we see David, who is devoted to God, bringing about in Israel, versus Saul, who was only devoted to himself and his own kingdom. Once again, let me just drive this home before we close. We need to understand that your life is in God. 
Your life is in God. Your calling is in God. Whatever, whatever he has in store for you in, in, in the world, and whatever you think that he might be wanting you to do, you need to understand that that is primarily found in God and it is in your relationship with him, obedience to him and following him, that that is then lived out. The various offices that you hold in life, what I mean by that, like the roles that you have, right? Roles as, uh, as if you are a business leader, right? If you are a, a, a husband or wife or a, a parent, whatever offices we hold in our life, we hold those primarily in God. And so if we understand this and start living like David, the true king, it should transform the way that you approach every office or role that you have in your life. Because you will not approach it as, um, let's say it's the workplace or or wherever else, you will not approach it as, I'm the king or queen over this domain. Instead, you would approach it as, I am the governor, I am the estate manager, I am the steward uh, here on behalf of God and, and th- in, in my rela- through my relationship with him and uh, following the leading that he has for me, bringing about his flourishing, his freedom uh, to, the pl- to this place that he has put me in. In plain language, this is, here's what this means for us. It means that Christ's followers abide in Christ and spread his kingdom. So if we are going to follow God's direction, and if by following God's direction we are going to bring deliverance, what that means is, is to just bring this all home, is that you must remain devoted to him in every day, in every moment of every day. Remain devoted to him. Do not start to, to veer off listening to other voices and do not start to see your life or your career or your, uh, your educational path, whatever it is that you're on, as your own. As, as your own kingdom, the, the realm of your domain, everywhere that you go and everything that you do, your devotion time is not just what happens in that, in that half an hour of, of reading the Bible and praying, but your devotion spreads throughout it all, right? Like I said before, remove the lid from that time and allow God to, to flood into all those other compartments, right? So everything we do is following his direction. That's going to require you to abide in him, just like Jesus tells us to in John 15, 4. He said, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. So friends, let me encourage you, abide in Christ. As you abide in Christ, follow Christ and whatever he calls you to do in every moment and then see how he brings freedom and flourishing into the world through you out of that abiding in him just like a a branch connected to the vine. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would help us to be a people who follow you. You and you alone, Lord, you above all. That we would recognize you as our king who brings us our freedom. And so we would seek your direction in every area of life, knowing that what you say is always better than whatever our world or culture tells us. Father, if there's anyone here who has not yet experienced your freedom or who has not uh, accepted the gospel yet, um, put their lives down before the cross, Lord, I just ask that you would move in them today. Help them to, uh, to relinquish control of their life, to let go of the, of the sin they've been holding on to, to let go of those efforts to pay for those sins or to remove that shame on their own, Lord, and to instead experience and receive the gift of the gospel which is that debt being removed and our shame being washed away. 
our fear being abolished and then stepping into the light of freedom. Father, I pray that for every single one of us today. Let us experience that freedom and then become uh, conduits of blessing into our city and world today. We pray this in your name. Amen.